So if you knew the end of the world was coming tomorrow, if you knew the end of the world was coming tomorrow, what would you do today? That's a tough question, isn't it? Take some thoughts. And while you're thinking about it, I'm going to tell you how Martin Luther answered that question. This reformer, not in his writings, but in what is thought to be a proverb that he often quoted, said this, If I knew that tomorrow was the end of the world, I would plant an apple tree today. Now, before you dismiss Luther as a green piecer or send him off to the Sierra Club, as many evangelical Christians sadly are apt to do, realize that this statement by Martin Luther more importantly reflects not his environmental or his ecological views, but instead it reflects Luther's eschatological views. It reflects what he believes is going to happen at the end of time when Christ returns. And based on what he believes is going to happen in the future, at the return of Christ, he chooses to plant a tree today. Because what you believe is going to happen has a huge impact on what you do right now and the choices you make even today. For instance, I grew up, you know all, you all know where I grew up, uh, around evangelical Christians whose stock response to just about anything or any activity was this, well, it's all going to burn anyway. That was just their eschatological view. If someone succeeded in life and was able to afford a, a nice car or, or a big house, those who had not that same success and had not that ability to make that purchase comforted themselves by saying, well... It's all going to burn anyway. On the other hand, if someone had truly experienced loss, they use this as a word of comfort. Well, it's all going to burn anyway. But the point is, their eschatological view informed the way they lived. Why bother with anything? It's all going to burn anyway. Maybe even tomorrow. Well, the early Christians... Right on up through the time of the Reformers, such as Martin Luther and Calvin, and even the Puritans who formed our country, they did not hold this view. They did not believe that Jesus was going to return to destroy the world. Instead, they believed he was going to return to renew it. And I believe that Martin Luther said that he would go out and plant an apple tree because he had listened to the voice of his king who spoke in Revelation 21. He who was seated on the throne said... Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And so that newly planted apple tree would not be destroyed, but it would grow and blossom in Jesus' perfect kingdom. So you and I, as believers in Christ, we're not to withdraw from the world as if nothing we do makes any difference anyway. Instead, you and I are are to engage in it. We are to go and make disciples. We are to love our neighbors as ourselves. We are to involve ourselves in acts of justice and mercy because you know what? It does matter. Somehow, through the resurrection, power of Jesus, what you and I do for the kingdom, it will last It'll be renewed and made perfect and made better. 
It will not be destroyed. And so the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It will not be of no purpose or result. And so therefore, you and I must do kingdom work with great hope and great purpose. And that's the end, I believe, to which Matthew inspires us in the passage that we have before us this morning in Matthew chapter 4. So I'm going to invite you, if you have your Bible with you, to take it out and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, the fourth chapter. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you. And when you found your place in Matthew chapter 4, let's stand together because we love and honor the Word of God as we hear it read together. Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 23, this is the word of the Lord. And Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralyticals, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you again for your word. As always, Lord, we are so thankful that you give us the standard by which we should order our lives. You reveal that to us. You reveal yourself to us. You tell us about your kingdom, and so for that, Lord, we are so thankful. As we consider your kingdom now in the next few moments together, I pray that through the power of your Spirit, you would give us eyes to see your truth and ears to hear your truth and hearts to understand it. Lord, apply it to our lives in such a way that your kingdom is extended through us and you receive the glory. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. The verses before us provide one of those inspirational glimpses that God gives to us because he is so good to us into what is ultimately real and ultimately true. It's like when Jesus was transfigured on the mountain. You remember that story, don't you? For just a brief moment, Peter and James and John saw Jesus as the glorious person he really is. And not to belittle our Lord in any way, but simply uh, for the sake of relating that moment on the mountain was like Clark Kent taking off his glasses. And Clark Kent taking off his Clark Kent clothes for just a moment. And, and he pulls back his shirt. And so you can see exposed there the S. Superman, right? Scripture says that in this moment on the mountain, Jesus' face shone like the sun and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. This was an inspirational moment, seeing Jesus like this. And so the verses this morning are similar in their ability to inspire us for just a moment. The curtains are pulled back, and you and I can 
uh, glimpse the kingdom of God for the reality that it is and will fully be someday. And by seeing the kingdom, our imaginations are excited. We're excited about the part that we can play in bringing that kingdom about. Now, I know it's May. As we've already discussed, yesterday was Cinco de Mayo. And that's enough about that. So I don't want to jolt you by taking you back to December, but I want to take you back to December, and I want you to think for just a moment about that well-known Christmas song, Joy to the World. And to remind you again that Joy to the World was hijacked by Christmas. It was never written as a Christmas song. It was written as a, a song to celebrate the second coming of Christ, not the first. So in view of that, listen to verse 3 of that Christmas song that we know so well. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. See, the reason the passage before us is so exciting this morning is because it's a glimpse of Jesus undoing the curse as far as it is found. It's a glimpse of the future kingdom where the curse will be reversed. And the only way for us to understand that, what we are witnessing in these verses, is to ground ourselves once again in the first chapters of the book of Genesis. They tell us of the beautiful work of God, how he created ex nihilo, out of nothing, everything that is. And when he created those things, he proclaimed them to be good or very good. They tell us the story of God creating man and woman in his likeness, in his own image. They tell us of the charge that God gave to Adam and Eve, subdue the earth and have dominion over it. Adam and Eve were created in the image of God to rule in the garden or the kingdom that God had created. Imagine how sinless people Sinless people would do that. People who are not full of greed. People who are not into exploiting creation for their own gain. People who would not scar it and mar it for the sake of self-interest. We were designed to rule with love and justice and mercy. And then we read of the fall. Adam and Eve listened to the voice of Satan, and they rebelled against God, and they did the very thing that God told them that they should never do. And in that moment, sin entered the world, and all of creation was impacted by that choice that Adam and Eve made. And so God said to Eve, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. And God said to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. And so we read these stories and we feel the weight of the tremendous loss. And we wonder, what would childbirth have been like? Before sin. What would it have looked like for Adam and Eve to rule and to reign 
with God and for God in the garden without the curse of thorns and thistles and all the dysfunction represented by them? What would work look like that did not cause sweat and bring weariness and exhaustion to the bones? Then if we keep reading in chapter 4, we read about one brother killing another. Relationships as well are destroyed by the fall. Nothing is as it should be. Nothing is as as it was created to be. The very goodness of it is gone. It's cursed. And so we do not wonder why the Apostle Paul would write what he does in Romans 8. Would you turn there? Would you turn over in the New Testament to... To Romans chapter 8. And I want us to hear these verses in light of, of what we've talked about from the first four chapters of Genesis. Beginning in Romans 8 verse 18. The Apostle Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. See, the the glory's coming back. That's good news, right? For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Listen, you can hear the longing for things to be set right. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Hear the longing here for things to be made right, for things to be the way God created them to be. You have that longing. Everyone has that longing, but not everyone has hope. That that longing will be fulfilled. That things will be made right. And so there are nihilists in the world. Who believe that everything is hopeless. That life has no meaning or value. That our existence is senseless and useless. But you and I. We have hope for what will be. And we hear these words from Romans 8. We see that you and I have a part to play in what will be. Just as Adam and Eve had in the garden. In some way creation will be set free and obtain the glory of the children of God. And so when you and I go back to our origins. What we were created to be. Who we were created to be. Those who graciously rule with God. Then we understand Who we are to be right now, this moment, and and who we will forever be. The Apostle Paul describes it like this in 2 Timothy chapter 2. This saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him, with Christ. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Is that not amazing? Reigning with Christ, the word simply means just that to, to reign jointly, to rule as king with someone. This is the purpose 
for which you and I were created by God in his image. So now at long last, let's get to the passage before us this morning in Matthew. Matthew, in these three short verses, gives us a glimpse of the kingdom as it will be. And everything that the disciples see here at this time will be in their minds. When Jesus takes them to the mountain in chapter 5 of Matthew and begins to teach them there. When he teaches them to pray this prayer. Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. On earth as it is in heaven. They've got a glimpse of the kingdom. And they've seen in the passage before us this morning how Jesus reverses the curse. And so I want us to look in the remainder of our time at five ways that Jesus reverses the curse. Five ways that Jesus reverses the curse. Now go ahead and give a sigh because there's five of them and you feel like you've already been here forever. Everybody good with that? The first way Jesus reverses the curse is by taking the message to the streets. Look in verse 25, 24. It says there that Jesus went throughout all Galilee. Literally, he went through the whole of the land of Galilee. And so we see that it's not just in one place that the curse will be reversed. It's in all places. And so what we see here is a microcosm of the nature of the curse reversal. It's for all places. The power of Jesus to restore and to renew is all pervasive. Is that good news? We're left to our own imaginations to imagine what the all places of Galilee look like. This place that was called Galilee of the Gentiles, the pagans, the heathens. Imagine some of the dark alleys that you could find in the cities of Galilee of the Gentiles. Imagine the transactions that might have taken place in those alleys. The paraphernalia that had been left behind that you might discover. The crime. Jesus went there. Posh neighborhoods where people had everything, but were still hopeless. Jesus went there. According to these verses, he went throughout all of Galilee. And so perhaps Matthew doesn't describe those places so that you and I can add our own description. Matthew gives us the principle. And that is the power of Jesus is all pervasive. And then he leaves it to you and me to apply that in our own lives, to ask ourselves these questions. Where will the rescuing, restorative power of Jesus not work? Where will the rescuing, restorative power of Jesus be impotent or ineffective? Where can the curse not be reversed? When you figure out where those places are, I give you permission, do not go there. You do not have to go to those places. But every other place where the power of God and the restoring 
power of the gospel can work, you and I should go there. As people who are indwelled by the Spirit of God and in that way have in that measure the glory of God within us, perhaps we need to extend the parameters of where we are willing to go to make them broader, knowing that ultimately there is no place that will not submit to the power and authority of Jesus Christ. In all places, Jesus can and someday will reverse the curse. Is that good news? Secondly, the second way Jesus reverses the curse is through teaching. Verse 23 tells us that he went through all Galilee teaching in their synagogues. Now you are starting to get those happy palpitations that Presbyterians always get when we start talking about teaching, right? Oh, we love to teach. How about this? Systematic theology. Woo, deacons, we need some smelling sauce on the seventh row. You know what? I'm going to allow this moment for us to bask in what we love to do and the importance that Jesus gives to teaching. But I'm going to allow it, providing that all of us good Presbyterians acknowledge that teaching is just one activity in which Jesus engaged to reverse the curse. We good with that? But Jesus did teach. In the synagogues, the places that already had the word of God. And so he went there and he explained and he expounded and he supplemented. And he applied the truth that they already had because Jesus values teaching as a way to reverse the curse. I'm reminded of Isaiah chapter 11 verse 9. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea. Listen, people. The curse will be reversed when the word of God is taught in its fullness. And when the goal of all our teaching is to display the knowledge of the glory of God that is seen most fully in the face of Jesus Christ. When that is the goal of our teaching, you know what I say? Teach on! Woo! 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 Come on, Presbyterians! Teach on! This is the end of our teaching, and so you and I have got to be committed, committed to teaching the Word of God, knowing that the truth of the Word of God will make a real difference in this world. It will. It will reverse the curse. Now let's look at the third way that Jesus reverses the curse. He went throughout all Galilee proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Now we have a preaching Jesus. That's what proclaim means, to preach, to herald, to announce. And preaching differs from teaching in that it means to make public declarations. To make public declarations to proclaim aloud. And so we should see an invasive element here in Jesus. So long as we separate our negative connotation of that word, invasive. Jesus was not obnoxious, but neither did Jesus wait for an invitation to proclaim the truth. He just did it. He just preached. While debate and questioning and dialogue might have gone on in the synagogue 
where Jesus was teaching, that's not invited when Jesus is preaching. In preaching, you simply proclaim the facts that are and that are not up for debate. For debate. For instance, if I proclaim to you, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life, guess what? That's a truth to be proclaimed and not for you to argue with. We, in our politically correct world that's so carefully guarded, we have to be okay with that, with setting forth facts as facts. And I say that with a little bit of fear and trembling because of the damage that's been done with proclamation, with preaching, that has not been tempered by grace and love. But when truth is proclaimed with love and grace, it has the power to reverse the curse. And what Jesus is proclaiming here in these verses is the good news of the kingdom. The facts of the kingdom of God are what bring such good news. So notice, please, what Jesus is not preaching here. Jesus, in this instance, is not preaching personal salvation. We all praise God for our personal salvation, don't we? You praise God for the new life you have in Christ? Of course we do. But we must not reduce everything to the individual and individual salvation. Again, not to belittle the kingdom of God, but to help us uh, relate. I think about admission to, to Disney World, the magic kingdom. Everyone individually has to buy a ticket to get in. But once you've done that, the kingdom is yours. You go about the kingdom and the offerings of the kingdom and the people inside the kingdom. It's all diverse. You're just one person in the midst of something overwhelming. And so Jesus preached the good news about the kingdom. It's the kingdom of God and all that it includes that's so beautiful. And if you and I will effectively in our lives Reverse the curse. We've got to move beyond reducing Christianity to just the individual. And you and I have got to become more kingdom-minded. To proclaim the facts about what God's kingdom is like. To proclaim that we as individuals must take our place in something much bigger and something much beautiful than ourselves. Then, in that way, you and I have impact in reversing the curse proclaiming, preaching the truth of the kingdom. Let's move on to the fourth way Jesus reverses the curse. It's through healing. Look in verse 23. They went throughout all Galilee, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. In verse 24, they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. D.A. Carson reminds us that both Scripture and Jewish tradition see sickness as resulting directly or indirectly from living in a fallen world. The curse. The emphasis here in Matthew 
is not on how Jesus healed. The emphasis is instead on that Jesus healed. And that Jesus healed every kind of disease. He had complete mastery over every illness. That's good news. Is this not the realm of the enemy in our lives? Threatening with sickness in this fallen world? Aren't we always wondering when we are going to be struck with something? Fearing what will happen when we are. Afraid that we'll die or that whatever might strike us would hinder us for the rest of our lives. So the good news is that Jesus has power over that which seems to have the most power over us. And so we see here a glimpse of the kingdom and Jesus' ability to reverse the curse. How beautiful that Jesus isn't concerned only with our souls, but also with our bodies that he created. He cares for them. He heals them. They matter to him because Jesus has a holistic view of creation and a view and of me. He knit us together in our mother's wombs. He knows every detail about the way he made us. And in these bodies that he has woven together, he has placed a living soul. And so Jesus ministers to the whole person. And if you and I will reverse the curse, we too must have a holistic view of people, body and soul. And you don't need me to apply that for you. When you and I leave this place, and all the people that we encounter in our lives, we've got to see them in the complexity of their composition, how they're made up, the complexity of their need, both physical and spiritual, and we have to minister to them as whole people. The fifth way. I'm going through these, right? Much quicker than you thought. Well, maybe. The fifth way. That Jesus reverses the curse is by being welcoming to all. We, we read here in these verses that people who found hope in Jesus, they went and got other people who needed hope and help from Jesus, and they brought them to Jesus, and Jesus received them and welcomed them, and Jesus healed them too. All the people. In this place that was such a mix of Jews and non-Jews and Gentiles and pagans and heathens. Matthew does not tell us that Jesus first asked, are you a Jew? Before he healed them. Matthew simply tells us that he healed every disease and every affliction among the people. What Matthew is doing here is emphasizing the breadth of Jesus' ministry and not the narrowness of it. Well, it's for you, but not for you. No, Jesus healed all. And we cannot fail to hear the note of grace here. All this healing that happens for these people who others went and God and brought to Jesus, it precedes that famous teaching of Jesus that's coming next in chapter 5, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus welcomed. And even his healing touch was not based on the assent that people gave to what Jesus was preaching or teaching. According to one commentator, before the crowds hear the Messiah's words, they are the subject of his compassion and healing. 
Having done nothing, nothing at all, they are benefited. So grace comes before task, help before demand, healing before imperative. And so you and I will take our place in God's kingdom and pray that through us in some way the curse will be reversed, then we too must be welcoming people. We must not hold people at a distance until they sign off on our beliefs or our theology. No, we welcome them before that. The time will come when we must teach and proclaim truth unashamedly, unabashedly to those who come near. But first, we must welcome them no matter where they are from and no matter what their background. How will we ever reverse the curse if we stand off in judgment of those who need to hear the good news of the kingdom? If you and I will reverse the curse, we must welcome all. Matthew concludes by giving us a final glimpse of the kingdom. A picture of what will be when the curse has finally been reversed. Look in verse 24. And so his fame spread throughout all Syria. And then in verse 25. Great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from, jo- and from beyond the Jordan. Oh, this is so great because what Matthew is giving us here is a picture of the uncontainability of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God will not be held hostage by geographic boundaries. It overflows. It spills over all of them. It can't be held in Galilee. It went north. It went east, crossing the Jordan. It went south to the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea. And all these people came from all of those different places because the work that Jesus is doing and preaching and teaching and healing is glorious. And so people are drawn to the glory of the person of Jesus Christ. And so I'm reminded of Isaiah chapter 2. Listen to this. Now it will come about that in the last days... The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Is that a beautiful picture? The nations of the world streaming to the mountain of the Lord. The kingdom of God is on the move. It cannot be contained. It cannot be constrained. The fame of the Lord will spread. Because in the person of Jesus Christ, we see the fullness of the kingdom of God as it will be. And it's so beautiful. And don't attempt to tell those who experienced it in this moment that it is not. It is. Jesus reversing the curse. Undoing it. It's beautiful. Defeating the power of sin and Satan to destroy with death and decay and oppression. Right here in the world. Jesus did not say to the sick, well, I could heal you. I have the ability to heal you and make a difference in your life right now, but why bother? You'll just get sick again. Jesus did not say, well, I could bring you back to life, but why bother? 
you'll just die again. Jesus did not say these things. Instead, he brings a taste of the future kingdom into the present so that you and I will take our place in kingdom work, that you and I will have it as a longing of our heart to reverse the curse in some way as far as that curse is found. Matthew inspires us with a glimpse of what will be so that you and I are inspired to be active in kingdom work right now, knowing that what we do will make a difference. Otherwise, why bother? Why disciple anyone? Heaven is coming with a new body that won't be able to sin. If someone's struggling with an addiction, drugs, alcohol, porn, just tell them, ah, don't worry about it. Heaven's coming. Someone's taking advantage of another person, say to them, ah, go ahead. Heaven is coming. Everything will be all right then. Everything will be all right then. But Jesus said to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus also said, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. So he gives you and me the authority and the power to make a difference now. This is not a disposable, throw-away world. This is not a disposable, throw-away world. Let's be part of the renewal process of reversing the curse. What we do now really matters for now and for eternity. Jesus is coming. Let's plant a tree. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you. Where do we begin? Thank you for coming to earth. Lord, thank you for ministering out in full and public view while you are on earth. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the glimpse of the kingdom that you have given us now through your word. Lord, we have such hope because we know the curse that has plagued humanity. Lord, the outworkings of that curse, the death, the destruction brought about by the instigation of sinful, evil people motivated by greed and lust for power. Lord, the curse, on and on it could go. And we thank you that in these verses we have hope. Lord, you are more powerful than the curse. Lord, you have the ability and someday will fully and completely reverse the curse as far as it is found. So we thank you for that glimpse. Lord, it inspires us. It makes us want to carry on in your strength and with your power and with your authority. Lord, it gives meaning to our lives, knowing that they are not senseless or useless or hopeless. But Lord, we have your promise from your word that our labor now is not in vain. And so I pray, Lord, that you would inspire us and encourage us to take our place in your kingdom, that we would so boldly proclaim the truth of your kingdom, 
teach your word. Lord, that we would minister to the whole of people, that we would welcome all. Lord, do these things in us and through us. And we pray that in this, this way, in this small place where we are, that renewing, renewal will, will begin to take place. The, the curse in small ways, Lord, will begin to be reversed as we wait for your glorious return, at which time all things will be renewed and made right. So we thank you for that in Jesus' name. And Lord, as we continue now silently before you, as a way to prepare to come to your table, Father, help us answer important questions. Like if we knew you were returning tomorrow, what would we do today? Lord, in the stillness of this time, we pray that your spirit would examine our hearts. See us our Reveal to us our commitment or lack of it to your kingdom. Show us, Lord, how we can be involved to use our gifts in this place to be about reversing the curse. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.